you guys ever give much thought to your nose? And, and, and not, not necessarily whether you, you love or you hate the way it looks because, you know, aside from the, the really crucial part it plays in our appearance, the human nose performs some pretty amazing functions like, like breathing, right? But it helps prevent infections. It determines your sense of taste and smell. It even affects the resonance of your voice. And if all of that weren't enough, uh, you and I even use the direction of people's noses to help us get more information about other people's character uh, or sometimes even their state of mind. Like, have you ever had someone look down their nose at you? Right. Or, or how, how about this? Did you ever point out someone that walked around with their nose in the air? Or here's a good one. St stay away from the boss today because he's got his nose out of joint about something. Right? And, and, and what, we, what we mean when we use those phrases, we, we basically say, hey, look out, he's angry about something. And believe it or not, we get that idiom from Scripture. Uh, because in Hebrew thought, there's a direct connection between the nose and the idea of anger. In fact, the most common way in biblical Hebrew to describe someone who gets angry is to say that his nose burned hot. I'll give you just one example, like in uh, 1 Samuel 17, if you remember the story, when the young David uh, is coming with a care package of food from his father Jesse to bring to his brothers that were on the front line of the battle with the Philistines, uh, and he starts walking around the camp, and he's talking to some of the other soldiers about uh, why they aren't fighting Goliath. If you remember, his older brother Eliab found out that he was there, and the Bible says in Hebrew that Eliab's nose burned hot against David. And he said, why did you come down here? Why did you leave those sheep back in the wilderness? And that's a pretty vivid description, right? Of somebody's nose burning hot. Because that's actually what happens when we get angry. Right? See, our hearts start racing. Our, our breathing speeds up, right? The center of our faces gets red. And sometimes our nostrils flare almost as if we're a tea kettle about to boil over until the steam comes pouring out. And, and I'm telling all of you guys all that for a reason. Uh, because the idea of that pent-up, visceral feeling of rage that we're all guilty of from time to time, <laughs> that kind that hardens our appearance and reddens our noses and, and just shows all over your face, no matter how hard you try to hide it, is the subject of our continuing look this morning at our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'm going to make just a little slight departure from what we've been doing up to this point. Uh, I have been reading you the entire text of the Sermon on the Mount each week up to and, and through the section we're covering, but that's getting kind of long now. Uh, so instead, I'm just going to read you just last week's lesson on Christ fulfilling the law, and then the text we're actually going to cover and be looking at today. And so if you missed any of the other previous sermons, as I told you before, on the Beatitudes, you can go back to the church website or to iTunes, and you can catch up on those. But this morning, I'm going to be reading to you uh, from the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 17, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. So Matthew 5, 17 to 26. And listen for the voice of the Spirit. And so Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. <clears throat> I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. And so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Father God, we thank you that in your word are hidden all the treasures of life and knowledge that we need. And so, Father, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would, uh, you would bless the reading and the hearing of this word. Uh, and, Father, that you would just allow us to see your Son through its preaching. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So, you know, as we saw last week, and I just reread to you this morning, uh, Jesus made it clear that he had come not to abolish the Old Testament, but to, to fulfill it. And, and that's important to remember because, you know, there's a bunch of New Age Christians out there uh, running around guys like Andy Stanley, uh, going around saying things like, you know, it's time for us to uncouple ourselves from the Old Testament and just be a New Testament church. But brothers and sisters, that simply is not possible, particularly in the gospel that we're studying, because the gospel of Matthew cites passages of Scripture directly from the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers combined. So if we ditch the Old Testament, it's, it's literally like losing the first book in a two-book series. It just wouldn't make sense. Uh, because everything that happens in the Old Testament is specifically laid out and tailor-made to point to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it was all written down and preserved from the beginning according to God's perfect will and plan. And I like this one commentator said of this, I thought it was kind of funny, he said, God didn't suddenly become a Christian between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, right? It was his plan all along. And he continues, God is the same today as he was at creation. He's the same God that graciously appeared to Abraham and who lovingly rescued faithless Israel. He's the same God who made astounding promises to the adulterer David, and he is the exact one that Jesus prayed to as Abba in the Lord's Prayer. And so, so we've established that God's law is perfect, and that it doesn't change. And we also know from last week that Jesus came not to cancel it out, but to, in himself, make it complete. And if you remember, we talked about a couple of important ways that he accomplished that. But today's lesson brings us one more. Because in our Lord's message this morning on anger management, he gives us an important example of another way that he fulfilled the law of God, and that was by correcting its teaching. And boy, did it need it. Because even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, practiced and taught strict adherence to the Torah and all of its requirements, at the same time, they had so, so stretched and, and pulled and, and parsed it out uh, to the point that it was almost beyond recognition. And so as we're going to see 
uh, in this next few sections of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus interprets some well-known teachings from the law uh, that its so-called teachers had really butchered. And the first of those is drawn directly from the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus says this morning, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say, and then he continues on. And you know, usually uh, when you hear the word but, it means you ignore or reverse everything you heard before it, right? But not in this case, because Jesus is not disagreeing with the original command, but he does object to the way that the command had been interpreted by the Jewish teachers. And so Jesus quotes the commandment, and rather than just leave it to the mere fact that uh, we haven't sent any of our enemies to the morgue lately, uh, he, he reaches into the intention of the commandment, and he explains it to include our inner thoughts as well as well as our inter external actions. Uh, and when he does this, Jesus is not correcting Moses. Uh, if anything, he's bringing people back to the text of the Bible right from the very heart of the book of Leviticus. If you look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, he tells us, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord which is not just some kind of external action that we can grudgingly submit to, but instead it's a whole different way to relate to the people around us. Another commentator said of this, Jesus' interpretations reveal a fuller expression of God's will for God's people as it focuses on the underlying motivation for murder, namely anger. And so Jesus is reminding his audience, and by extension us today, that the commandment was not simply a prohibition against the outward act of physical murder, it was a call to consider the attitudes of our hearts. And as you heard in today's lesson, Jesus takes those attitudes pretty seriously. Because you may have noticed in each of the three parts of his teaching, as the level of the anger rises, so does the severity of the penalty. So first remember, Jesus says, uh, a person who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. And that phrase he uses there for libel is uses in a couple of different ways in the Greek. It can mean uh, maybe something that's got a hold of you, making you more liable, or maybe we could say more likely to do something. But it can also be used in the forensic sense of actual liability for not doing everything in your power to prevent something from happening. Like, for instance, let's say, uh, who shops at Publix? Anybody shop at Publix? Okay. So let's, let's say Publix has their freezers go out. All their meat goes bad. They don't bother to take it off the shelf. Right? You go in, you, you buy a pack, you take it home to eat. Somebody dies from food poisoning. So who's liable? Publix, right? Yes, thank you. So Publix is directly liable, right? And, and we get that uh, because they didn't do everything possible to prevent it. But making that same kind of liability connection between mere internal thoughts and attitudes would have been so shocking to Jesus' first hearers because what he's doing is equating the nurture and the harboring of anger in our hearts with not just negligence, but premeditated murder. Right? I want you to think about it. That's pretty serious, right? Jesus is saying to his audience and to us, the nurture and the harboring of anger within us is not just negligence. It's equivalent to premeditated murder. And then Jesus takes it up a notch. And he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And don't mishear this. This verse is not talking about some you know, innocuous slight or some offhand comment or, or just hurting someone's feelings. No, the original language here 
uh, is more explicit. If anyone calls his brother Raka, he's liable before the council. And that, that word Raka is a fairly common Hebrew expression that comes from the root word meaning to spit. Uh, and it's a really rude equivalent to calling someone completely worthless. To look at someone and say, you're trash. Strong's lexicon called it a term of utter vilification. And the penalty Jesus prescribes in his own words is appearing before the council. Which is a, a way of saying the Sanhedrin was the highest court of the Jews. And so it's like he's saying you deserve to be tried in the highest court of the land if you do something like that. And then finally, Jesus warns his disciples that calling someone you fool results in the danger of hellfire. And this one is a little harder to understand because I think you'd expect that the third level in the progression of the anger here would be for the absolute strongest expression of it that you could think of, especially since the judgment attached to it are the fires of hell. And so it seems to fall a little flat because if you just call somebody you fool in English, is not, that's not really that strong of an insult, right? But in Jesus' day, it would have been. The Greek word here Jesus uses for fool is where we get our English word moron from. Uh, but even here, it would be kind of a mistake to import the contemporary English sense of the word because Jesus means something a whole lot stronger and more serious in using it. Jesus means something like you foolish rebel. Or maybe we would understand it better as calling someone a heretic or an apostate, which is a pretty serious charge to level against someone, right? especially without a cause. And so it's a warning to us to be careful who we label true believers and who we choose to vilify. The Apostle Paul picked up the idea in Romans 14 when he writes, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And it kind of made me think like, you know, like here in worship, when I look out over this group, there, there are so many different backgrounds and so many different worship styles. Like, like some people like to say amen during the message, right? Uh, and I like it when you do that because that way I know you're with me. Um, some people like to raise their hands in prayer. Some folks were baptized into different traditions, whether it was infant baptism or believer baptism. Uh, other folks disagree on peripheral elements of different church practices, and all or some of that may not necessarily be your cup of tea. But the point is, those folks aren't worshiping you. They're worshiping God, and he is the one they'll be answering to. So before you're too quick to write off someone else uh, and they're thinking about how they worship, uh, take a look at what our Lord is saying here and focus maybe on your own heart instead. Now, now that doesn't mean we don't have standards to judge by. And it doesn't mean there aren't times when we don't need to call out someone's false teaching or faulty worship practices. Of course we do. But that's the job of the church. And that's the job of the council and not necessarily the purview of individual people who put themselves in the place of God to pass judgment. Uh, and evidently, God doesn't take too kindly to that either because, again, Jesus wanted to really shock his listeners awake to the reality of what was going on inside of them. And so he clearly says, if you're angry enough, to use insulting and hurtful language about those sorts of things before the presence of God, you might want to check on the state of the heart that those words come out of. And I know we've gone kind of far on this, this anger idea, so please don't mishear me to say that we should never get angry about anything. Right? Because there are many things in this life which ought to anger us very deeply. Uh, and even our Lord Jesus got angry. Right? We know that from at least three examples of Scripture. 
We know he got angry over number one, uh, prioritizing religious ritual over human need. If you guys remember the, the story, one Saturday Jesus was in the synagogue worshiping and there was a, a man there with a shriveled hand and the, the Pharisees were kind of waiting in the wings hoping to catch Jesus in the act of breaking the Sabbath by healing. Uh, and so Jesus just straight up asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? And, and of course the answer is obvious, right? But do you know what the Pharisees said back to him? Nothing. They said nothing. And we're told Jesus looked around at them and in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And the word used there indicates Jesus was not only angry, but he was bitter to tears at their lack of love for a hurting human being, all the while claiming to be worshiping God. And number two, he got angry over not letting little children come to him. Right? If you remember when Jesus was preaching and teaching, this crowd of parents started hovering around him with their little kiddos, hoping to have Jesus bless them. But the disciples decided all on their own, uh, hey, the master is way too busy for that today. And so they began to chase the kids away. But the Bible says when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And the Greek word there actually means to shudder or to quiver. And I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever been around someone who was angry enough that they were shaking, you might want to back off, right? Where, where I come from, that's what's called fighting mad. Uh, and what was Jesus' problem? Well, he explained it himself. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. And so the thing that made Jesus that hot was the idea that little children who often have the most faith would be treated like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And to Jesus, that was just unacceptable. And the third example, number three, was at the cleansing of the temple. And you guys know this one, right? Jesus enters the temple and he sees the merchants profiteering off the pious pilgrims as they come to worship. And the Bible doesn't actually say the words in the passage that he was angry, but it's a pretty good assumption. Given that he takes some rope and braids it into a whip and started chasing the vendors out and flipping over tables. And that actually happened twice. It happened at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2 and on the Monday of his last week in Matthew 21. And he tells us why he did it by quoting scripture. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. And so in that single sentence, he quotes two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, both of which are threats of judgment against the temple establishment. Because not only were they monetizing the worship of God, which is never a good thing, they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles, in the only place that everyone regardless of your ethnicity or a background, were allowed to enter, which in effect was making the public-facing sphere of the church into a place of greed and hypocrisy rather than the welcoming embrace of the God of the universe. And so Jesus is basically here angry with the religious establishment and the primary teachers of the law for the same reason he had been mad at his own disciples over the children, because they were turning the people that needed it the most away from the presence of God, and they were doing it in the name of religion. And so far from outlawing anger, as said, Jesus is showing us today by word and by example that the anger itself is not necessarily the problem, it's the cause of the anger 
and then what we do about it when it rises up. It's like what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4. He said, be angry and yet do not sin. Let not the sun set upon your anger, neither give opportunity to the devil. Let all bitterness and rage and anger and clamor and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as also in Christ God forgave you. Because you see, when we react in anger, we can cause injury. When we hold on to anger, we breed unforgiveness. But the message today is that as Jesus' disciples, we need to be able, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to deal with anger differently than the whole rest of the world. That we'll look for opportunities for reconciliation rather than for revenge. And more importantly, that we will deal with the internal causes of our anger before getting our noses all out of joint and just lashing out at someone. Which actually brings me right back to where we started. If you remember, I started out telling you uh, that in the Bible, the most common Hebrew word for anger or wrath is the same word used for nose. And I told you about people's noses growing hot with anger. But, but in closing, I want to leave you with a message that the Bible has for us about God's nose. Again, right from the heart of the Old Testament. The very familiar passage of Exodus 34, 6 about God's unfailing love for his people. A verse that we could literally translate, and the Lord passed over before his face and calleth Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am long of nose and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And I have to admit, I've never given the idea of God's nose much thought before I started digging into the sermon material for this week. But the text is telling us here that when God is described as being slow to anger or long-suffering here, that the Hebrew phrase is literally long of nose, which I take to mean that our gracious Father doesn't have a short fuse like we sometimes do. That it takes a long time for his nose to wax hot in anger, and maybe even longer for the fumes of that anger to start rolling back out. And brothers and sisters, the place we see that the best is in the love that he has for us in Jesus Christ. And in his voluntary substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. As Ephesians 5 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so just as Christ's act of sacrificial love soothed the flaming rage of God's anger against the sins of the world and the sins inside me, by us joining with Christ, we become a pleasing aroma to God too. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Now, thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ and through us reveals the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God a sweet fragrance of Christ among those who are saved and among those who perish. To the one we are the fragrance of death which brings death, but to those that are being saved, it has the sweet smell of life and it brings them life. And so who's good enough to do this work? Certainly not those who are out there selling God's message for a prophet, but we don't do that. But with Christ's help, we speak God's truth honestly, knowing that we must answer to him. And so, brothers and sisters, because we all do have to answer to him, let's work on growing out our noses this week. Re refusing to let anger get them all out of joint and control us and control our attitudes and our actions and by the power of the Holy Spirit grow more and more until we truly love what God loves and, and learn to focus our anger to hate what he hates 
but most of all have the maturity to know the difference. And for those of you who may be here or listening who don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus today, my job is to tell you that you too do have to answer to him. But you'll be doing it in the full fury of his righteous anger in the court of heaven. And so in Jesus' name I say to you in his words from today's text, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Repent today and believe the gospel and find your sins forgiven and God's anger abated in Jesus' name. Amen. Father God, we thank you that the greatest expression of your love for us is in your Son. And so, Father, we ask that uh, by his Holy Spirit that you would walk among us this morning. If there's even one here uh, or one listening that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would be surprised by the power of your presence and your holiness. Uh, Father, we ask that for those that do know you, that we would uh, grow more and more in love with you, that you would take us further and further on our walk of sanctification. And Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to go out this week and to spread the sweet fragrance of the gospel uh, to all those that we come in contact with. And so we trust and praise you and all that you're about to do in and through us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.